I'm Valerie Earnshaw. I'm Carly Hill. And this is Sex, Drugs, and Science. Today's conversation is with Dr. Jelani Kerr. Jelani is an associate professor, newly tenured, of health promotion and behavioral sciences at the University of Louisville School of Public Health and Information Sciences. So Jelani, I wanted to start off by giving you like a big, huge congratulations on your tenure and promotion. So, yay, yay. yay, Jelani. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I also just got mine in the last like week or so. So I feel like oh, really? this is like a recording slash, you know, tenure party. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Congrats yeah, all we around. Have to, we have to celebrate next time we see each other. If, uh, I, I, I don't know. When do you think that'll be? I don't know. Maybe in 2024 or something like that. 20, okay. 2024, we're going to throw the biggest <laughs> tenure bash at whatever <laughs> conference we're attending and everyone who's listening is invited. <laughs> <laughs> so we were actually talking a little bit about tenure with uh, some of the research assistants, the undergrads in our lab who help produce the show. And they were saying that they they aren't actually clear on what tenure is. So I'll just lay oh. out there that... Tenure is actually defined, I, I looked it up. I was like, how do people actually define this? As an indefinite job post. <laughs> so you're essentially like, it's really hard for you to be fired um, from your position at a university. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's in part designed to give faculty members like the security to tackle un, maybe unpopular but important topics, like, or to take risks in your scholarship and teaching. Um, um. Is that your impression too, as to why we have the system? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's how it's always been explained to me. Um, mm-hmm. Like my mentor in grad school, he was his thing about tenure was like, this is the yeah this is the opportunity to like really do really um, interesting and really and if need be controversial research and like say controversial truths that you know need to be examined and explored and discussed um, without any fear of reprisal. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, and so I, I, that's how I've always interpreted, interpreted So does that mean mm-hmm. that you guys just like throughout your career up until this point have just had like a secret like lockbox sort of like all these ideas that you're like just waiting for, you know, this chance to like, all right, now, you know, now that I have this tenure, I can just like jump out and these are all the things that I wanted to do, but I couldn't like, what is that like? Or is it sort of like now you get to dip your toes in the water and like allow yourself to sort of think about some of those topics? Um, I think, okay, so, the, okay, so there are a couple ways to look at it. So some people are just, some people you know, kind of think, listen, the academy is the place where you just need to say what you need to say and just be bold with whether you have tenure or whether you, you know, don't, like just be courageous and say what you need to say. And, you know, I think, you know, I think I think that's fine as well, and I think that's I think that's good. And um, but there is this. Um, I mean, there are some level of politics involved to where, you know, you may have to you be a little bit more judicious and use a little bit more wisdom with what you say and how you say it before you can really, you know, go out there, um, because you know. I mean, we, you know, we have families to feed as well and yep. you know, we have to, 
you know, bills, you know, still need to be paid and, and all of that. And so, but I think I've always seen tenure as just the opportunity to, like, if you, to just be um, more complete and more unfiltered and, you know, in the things that you want and need to say. Now, I mean, that, I don't think that means like going on top of, you know, going on top of the mountain with a megaphone and <laughs> t- you know, telling everybody really what's up. But yeah, <laughs> yeah they don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But you know, I, I, I think it gives, I think it gives the um, more leeway to do that. Like, is is that is that how you feel, um, Valerie? Yeah, I do. I do think that. I mean, you know, and I think my lens here is, you know, we both have lenses that I think we have experienced the, you know, academia. So for me, also like as a woman, I noticed this last year as my tenure case progressed that I spoke up more and more. <laughs> so like, mm-hmm. um. One example would be that I'm in a, or I was in a meeting with this white, you know, man, and he's more senior than I am. And the discussion was, or, you know, there was a discussion and we disagreed. And, you know, I, there were the people in the room, like, I don't know, I would probably say at the beginning of the conversation, it was like 60% probably agreed with me and 40% agreed with him. Mm -hmm. Well, over the, you know, over the course of the conversation, he starts to get more heated and he's, he's like starts to pace. And I, I remember having this thought process, like, what? where is my tenure case? Because what happens <laughs> if you have tenure materials is it goes through mm-hmm. like first it's voted on in your department, then in the college, mm-hmm. then at the college or then at the university level for us. And I was like, is he able to vote against my tenure case? Right. Any? Right. And I remember having the thought process, like, <clears throat> nope, all clear. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to just have this conversation with him. Like, I think if it, if I didn't feel like I had passed his reach that I would have like been more conciliatory or let somebody else in the room champion that argument. But I was like, no, I've got this. Like I have the power to like have this conversation with this with this person who otherwise I think I would have just been like, okay, whatever you think, like, whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Pe- yeah. People in the Academy, like some people in the, ca- in the Academy can be like weirdly petty, um, mm-hmm. which is what you think would be kind of odd for an enterprise that's like, that's really um, characterized, you know, by, you know, intellect, you know, how, how, if you want to describe it as intellectuals or, you know, really smart people, you know, you know, supposedly mature and, but that doesn't, you know, that's, but I guess, I mean, I guess the humane thing is to say, you know, everybody's human and, and they have their flaws, but it is like, it is, like, I've seen situations where it can be weirdly, where things can just be weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I will give this caveat. It's not, I've, I haven't experienced, you know, a great deal of that where I am, you know, at, at the University of Louisville. Um, right. So I do want to say that they've been pretty supportive so far. Um, and, you know, like a lot of places, I think there are, you know, there may be, there may be some weird characters every now and then, but I think that's everywhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And to tell the truth, I think like, people in the academy can be kind of, just in general, kind of weird anyway. 
think that's fair. And, I, and I'm not, and I'm not excluding myself from that either. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I wasn't oh, either. Man, yeah. The further yeah. I get, the weirder I think that I am. Like it's like a real. <laughs> yeah. So what did you guys do to celebrate? This is like a huge, huge deal. I know it takes like a whole lot of, you know, stress and it's all these different processes. Like what'd you guys do to celebrate in the pandemic? Um, okay, so we, we, there's really not much we could do. In this yeah. like, we could, right. like we couldn't get up and just throw the party. I think I went and got some Kentucky Fried Chicken. And just, nice. <laughs> and just, you know, I, I think that may have, I think that may have been it. And like, I, no way, me and my wife got something to, I think, I think we may have got some nice takeout from the restaurant or something, but you know, it wasn't, yeah, it was just kind of, okay. I mean, I'm happy I have it, but when I first got it, I don't know if it's hit me. It's just kind of like, oh, okay, that's cool. I got it. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, first and foremost, I'm celebrating right now with Jelani. So, (laughs) and then also um, the husband and I walked around Longwood Gardens, which is my favorite place. So it's, it's this garden kind of area close to where we live, which is, they just have all of these flowers. And um, so, uh, you know, everyone was there mostly walking around with their masks on. (laughs) So, yeah, so that was nice. Um, oh, yeah. 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 Anytime is a good time to get tenure, but yep. <laughs> wouldn't it be? But this is like, but all that being said, this is not a great time to celebrate tenure. Yeah. It's not a great time yeah. to celebrate tenure, but do you feel mm-hmm. like it's kind of like the best time to get tenure? I mean, like if, if ever you're going to feel a new level of job security, like having that come through during oh, yeah. the pandemic feels pretty Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's just more of a reason that you guys are both going to have to celebrate once this pandemic is over yeah. in 2024. 2024, whatever. <laughs> Fill in the blank conference. Can yeah. Happen. yeah, I know. I know. Have you thought about how, you know, post-tenure life might look for you as compared to pre-tenure life, either like the projects that you're going to take on or just how your life is going to be, like your stress levels or anything? or. <laughs> What do you hope for? Um, so my main thing was just okay. Now, um, now I ha- I'm a little more unfettered in how I say what I want to say. Mm-hmm. Not that I didn't say what I want to say, but, but I'm now, you know, now I feel a little more unfettered in doing that. To me, that's the biggest. That's the biggest change. Um, you know, I still plan on. You know, I still plan on doing the work. I still plan on. No, though I, I mean, they may ask me to take on more administrative roles. I kind of want to just, which is fine. Um, my real passion right now is research. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you're good at it. We need it. So. <laughs> oh, oh, so nice. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, oh man, we entirely disagree with you after spending all week deep diving on your research so. yeah respectfully disagree <laughs> yeah. with you on that i one. actually went reading through it i was like this is like a really lovely coherent line of like studies and i could totally structure a really nice ho- hopefully what you think is a really nice interview <laughs> it, so. okay, well i appreciate it well i'll take that back i know what i'm doing but i don't know what i'm doing yeah. you gotta you gotta fake yeah. it till you make it you know He's made it. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. That's what, yeah. So now okay. you can stop faking it. You can just keep oh, rolling. With it. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I say that to say, I don't want the audience to get confused. I, th- I think that's a sentiment that a lot of people have. Like, we're yes. just kind of, 
we're working on we're working on it and we have our areas and our low areas of areas of expertise but mm. a lot of this is just feeling your way through kind of like knowing the direction but some of this is feeling your way through the dark i understand i think i think yeah. you're totally right i think that getting a phd is sort of like signing up to just always be figuring stuff out <laughs> like yeah. you pretty much have just shown that like you can figure it out and now like with each unless you just want to do like the same type of study over and over and over again like you're always going to have to navigate like new, totally new things, or you're going to have to figure out like, how is I going to do this study during a pandemic now, <laughs> which is what I Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't, so, so how, how do you, how are you guys feeling about doing research during the pan, pandemic? Where's, yeah. So especially, uh, pri especially primary, especially data collection, like going out yeah. there and collecting surveys and you know all of this stuff. Collecting data in the clinic or yeah. out in the community setting. So yeah. mm -hmm. the main project that we have going on is the next phase has us going back into our local methadone clinic and doing a intervention essentially with people who. Um, you know, have a history of opioid use disorders, are thinking about disclosing that to someone new in the first time for the first time, and then, you know, walking them through this intervention, then they come back after a month and tell us that how it's going for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I should really clarify here that by we I mean Carly. Carly is, you know, out in the clinic. And so yeah, we've had a couple conversations. So Carly, how do you how do you feel about starting back up and what are your thoughts? I mean, I, so I'm in a position where I've been stuck inside the house since January. So like, I'm super pumped to get back into a routine where like I get to leave the house uh, for work. But um, I understand that, you know, there's going to, it's going to look a little bit different. Some of the interviews and how it's going to be structured and there's going to be some different things we're going to have to, I think it's going to be one of those like roll with the punches things, like kind of trying to figure out space and like the logistics of all of it. But, um, you know, I, I see a lot of plus sides to it too so i mean yeah. selfishly i'm super excited to get back out there if we're allowed but um that's kind of i guess up in the air right now yeah i think we're going to be able to get back in there but i'm really worried about putting carly in there like i don't feel yeah. great about that at all so i think that's we're just gonna have to keep our eye like i i feel like this a lot with carly actually because like you know i'm like Carly, will you just stay home? Or, you know, with work-wise, yeah. like if you're not feeling well, just stay home. And Carly's like such a hard worker and she likes to get out of the house. And I'm like, Carly, take a sick day. And she's like, no, I just had surgery yesterday. So it's today. Oh, wow. Like I can do it. And oh, wow. I'm like, she's making it sound know. way more serious than no, it actually I is. Think, I don't think that I am. Anyway, it's, you know, she's a super hard worker and I feel like I'm not like, we can, we can wait a month. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, please let me out of the house for yeah. the love of God, please. So yeah. how are you yeah, thinking no, about this? Sorry. Well, no, well, first I understand. I have a GA who's, um, you know, who's like that. Who's mm. like, she's, re she's ready to go. And I'm, I'm kind of like, and, you know, and she's, taking all the precautions, social distance, but she is ready to, I mean, she, we're like, okay, it's time to uh, go into the community to collect, but she's ready to go, Okay. you know? And, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm also, to an extent, I'm 
like I'm kind of talking to her to just be like, well, you know, wait, wait we may have to do some things online list, mm-hmm. but she's just, but it, it's, it's good to see people who are just really excited. And, you know, that's, that's who you like, that's great. That's who you want. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I well, think you're doing something right, Carly. I was just yeah. Gonna, well, yeah, but I I feel super grateful to get to do the work. I think that it's mm-hmm. you know really interesting being in a, a methadone clinic all day is something that not a lot of people you know can say. And I sort of had the luxury of like being having everything from the bird's eye view, you know, without actually mm-hmm. having to you know be in the thick of it. So it's been a fantastic experience. So I I can't wait to get back. But you know, mm-hmm. I'm also all right with waiting. I guess <laughs> <laughs> it's a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to take us back and rewind a little bit to some of your um, to some of your early work and sort of ask you about how you initially got started working with. It looks like a lot of a lot of your work is at this intersection of um, HIV prevention and treatment, stigma, and then often among African American youth. Yes. So we were sort yeah. of wondering, you know, why this population of focus? Why? why um, focus on HIV specifically and stigma? Sort of how did you get into this area? Um, so um, I grew up, so I grew up in the 80s and 90s when the HIV epidemic was first, um, was first coming to our attention and first kind of, um, where it's in the first time we're seeing just this rapid escalation of HIV cases and you know, and just in, in some of my formative years, just kind of seeing that. And, you know, and I've met people and I've known people and um, who you know, have been living with HIV and, you know, some friends who have died with it. Um, and so that that's part of the motivation. But it's also the fact that you know, it's, you know, it, is a, it is a condition that is acquired. And if we look at, um, if we look at uh, like a lot of other diseases, like there's such a randomness to cancer um, that in some respects, I almost feel helpless to really address it. Um, you know, or, you know, you know heart, heart, disease to an, heart disease to an extent, but I mean, to me, that just didn't, that, that just didn't really, um, um, you know, I just wasn't jazzed about that you know and yeah and um so i was looking so i was interested in mental health i was interested in hiv and hiv in a lot of ways is kind of all this it is kind of meets at the intersection of a lot of these different types of social marginalizations Mm -hmm. um like so you know if you look at if you look at um like class issues like HIV that directly informs how HIV operates. If you look at racism, um, homophobia, transphobia, just all in all of these, you know, all sexism, all of these isms, you know, and I'm I'm like, this is where like all of these things kind of feed into HIV. And then the fact that it it affected so many, it affects so many um African Americans, so many people, and I'm <clears throat> I remember just being younger and just my kind of getting wind of the stats and just seeing how it how it is and I'm I, and I'm I'm just like how is this how is this happening we have to do something about this especially because it's not fully explained 
you know, the disparities around in the, the disparity rate, excuse me, the disparities around HIV just cannot be fully explained by the behavior. Like mm-hmm. they're just, they're just not. You can't, you know, you can't just tell people to change this behavior, change that behavior, and expect to address these disparities. It won't work because there are a lot of social determinants that help drive them, or that's something that's really unfeasible. And that's that's kind of, that's a bit why I've got um, interested in it and the work that I did um, in. <clears throat> especially in grad school can help <clears throat> those are some of the projects and some of the work for the GAs that um I started my career off with. Mm. So um now that's a that's a bit how I how I was interested and in, you know just so all of those things come together, you know, and that's how I'm that's now why I'm working in the HIV field. And just to underscore that, I mean, you said that you can't explain these these differences that we see in the data between, you know, with higher rates of HIV among African Americans than um, than white Americans. Is right. it's not just the behaviors. So what, you know, so part of what science has shown is that um, like people are using condoms at pretty similar rates. It's not that like one group versus the other is engaging in all of these like really risky sex related or drug use behaviors. It seems to be more like, um, you know, what you're saying is these social determinants. So things like, um, things like, you know, stigma as a social determinant, but also just the idea that there's like, there's more of HIV in some networks than there are in others, just like right now with COVID, like there's just more COVID in some places than others. So if like you go out to, to a restaurant in some places in the U S right now, you're just more likely to get COVID (laughs) than if you were to go out to a restaurant in a different Um, location. Yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty much. And I'm hoping that if, at some point we can get away from the conversation about, you know, just focusing on behaviors because I've, in my opinion, we've been fed that for years, for decades actually. And, you know, and it's not really brought us to where we want to be or where we need to be. And so, you know, like a lot of things in health, these things have a foundational structure. Um, like a lot of inequities in health, these things have a foundational structure. So, you know, I'm hoping that in the public health field, and especially when we start talking, and in the policy fields, we can start taking an eye to those things. Uh, because they, uh, they can be addressed. They've addressed them in other countries. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of those things that you would like to, you would like to see the conversation move in the direction of? Um, so first, I, I do think that there needs to be like just more resources put into healthcare, mm-hmm. just healthcare in general. And I think that would, and I think that would, um, give people greater access to tools that you need for HIV prevention, um, whether it's HIV testing, whether it's kind of use or just being able to go to the doctor and just talk and get counseling around like sexual, you know, sexual behavior and like what is what does it mean to be vulnerable and you know to HIV and, and what that means. Um, so there are definitely things we can do in the healthcare field and yeah, I got to. I might as well just say I mean, we need universal. We need universal. Um, yeah, okay. we need universal healthcare. Absolutely. Right and 
not not as we've constructed it today, even with the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, I can I can talk and I can talk a lot about some of the deficiencies with with even our most um, with even what appears to be our most liberal approach to healthcare, and I think we're eminently able to address that, and we have the resources to address that, but we don't have the political will, and you know that's that's just simply. I think it's developing, but it's just simply not there. Anyway, uh, I tend to go off on tangents. So. No, I'm still with you because I was having <laughs> mm-hmm. this conversation with a friend last night, mm-hmm. and at the end of the conversation, I know, I mean, it was, it was, it was couched in COVID. I was like, I just don't think that people in the States care about health. You know what I mean? Like if we care, if health was the thing that we cared about, we would have universal health care. We would be making wildly different decisions when it came to COVID. I was like, I just think that maybe like, I just don't know that we care about health in the same way. And I mean, I shouldn't say weeks. I care about health. That's yeah, like I'm doing yeah. what I do, but like, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's politics or what, but like, to me, health is so foundational. Like if you don't have health, I don't, you don't have anything, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know it, it's, it's staggering that we have over a hundred thousand people dead from COVID. It's a hundred. Totally and that's probably, and that's yeah. probably under, the numbers that we have now, they're probably underreported. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's that, and it just seems like nobody cares anymore. Yeah. Like, no, it's, it's just business as usual. It's like, it's, it's, it's frightening. Mm-hmm. It's frightening. Like, what's, anyway, what's going, what's going on? Yeah. Anyway, um, Okay, your original question was how do we address HIV? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think it's all connected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah. I think that universal uh, universal healthcare would be a would be a good thing. I do, th- I do think that um, the way we educate young people about um, sex matters. Um, comprehensive. The science shows that comprehensive sex education works. I understand why people may not. <clears throat> may not want to go in that direction, but um, you know, sexual decision making is a is an interesting thing. If you're in favor of abstinence only education, like, I can understand that. You know, I'm you know I'm a you know I'm a believer. I'm a you know I was born again at a you know at a young age, so I can under so I can definitely understand that. But at the same time, like if a young people, if a young people or if any, I'm not even going to say young people. If, if if individuals are interested in having sex, giving them, or if they're not interested in having sex, then telling them how to protect themselves won't facilitate that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's just what the that act. That's just what the data says. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've never, <laughs> I've never thought about it from that perspective. But yeah, if they're not going to do it, they're not going to do it. It's not going to. They're not going to be like, oh, that's how it's done. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Let's right. Make this party I mean, happen. No, it's not going to happen. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of reasons for that are just kind of when people, when some people make that decision, like a lot of those are for really, like personal reasons that they feel strongly about, and so you know, a teacher talking to somebody about like how to protect themselves won't necessarily like get them to change their mind on that. But yeah. if they do decide that if they do get to the point where they decide, okay, I want to do this now, they have the knowledge. 
right? Yeah, there's no student in that classroom who's like, I've been just waiting for this teacher to tell me about <laughs> what a condom is. And now that I have this, especially like in the internet age, like now that right. I have this information, mm -hmm. <laughs> I know how to put this condom on this banana, it's, it's going to happen. Yeah, that's just right. not, that right. happens zero times, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, let's see, what else? I think that, um, well, if we want to get into my research, I, this is starting, this, this may be like this may be like starting the point from where the from where it should end, but well, I strongly believe that we need to re-examine drug policy. But yeah, never mind. Not re-examine. Look, we need to stop this warrant. We need to legalize some stuff. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people are just going to jail for things that I'm not sure should be illegal. Um, specifically, you know, specifically drug charges. Um, the development of of the drug wars, you know, not, you know, uh, there there have been a lot of arguments about its intent. Um, not even, you know, even the um, even the history of it and how it's affected people of color, African Americans. Um, a lot of it, I think, that just plain old. Just plain old getting rid of the prohibition on it would keep people from going to jail so often. And if we can keep more people, more black people in the community, there are far reaching effects that <laughs> they can not only not only address HIV in the community, but also, you know, improve that in my, you know, in my opinion, improve the well-being and the health of just African Americans in this country in general. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, could we delve a little bit into the intentionality of the war on drugs? Okay, sure, sure. So, the history lesson for today yes. is that. Um, so, in in my in the uh, article that um, you guys are referencing, is we talk about um, drug war, HIV inequities model. Um, and I give and I give a brief history about like what's the drug war and how did it you know how did how did it start and where did it come and we know that there are some you know we know there was messaging around drugs that began in the twenty early twentieth century maybe even a little bit before that uh, or before, even before the earlier twentieth century but a lot of the focus on the war on drugs like like or a lot of the messaging around drugs and and how it's been and and the nature of that messaging kind of began in the earlier 20th century it's a guy um you know, harry anslinger um uh you know who's you know who's a government administrator tasked with at one point he was tasked with um helping to execute alcohol prohibition mm, okay yeah so um, career <laughs> right <laughs> legacy right. Yeah. right right so he's tasked yeah. with this kind of at a point where the tide is kind of turning around how people think about how people think about alcohol and so even harry Anslinger, at, at one point he's kind of like you know listen marijuana is not that really really not that big of a deal um you know we don't need to really think about it. but but then prohibition is repealed and so you guys so you have this guy who has this government agency, really that serves no purpose. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So right. He's like 
So his initial stance is marijuana, no big deal, but you know, I'm in charge of this agency that's really focused on alcohol. So then his agency is shut down and he's got nothing to do. Right, right. So okay. it's a, right, I mean, and like think like think about it, at this time, people like drugs are not really stigmatized. Drug use is not really stigmatized. Oh it. yeah. There's like morphine yeah. use in the wake yeah. of world or sorry, of the Civil War. There's like a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh yeah. I was yeah. doing a deep, uh, a somewhat history dive myself on the history of like, op- like opioid waves in the U.S. Because this is like just we're kind of in the latest, you know, wave of opioid use. Um, yeah, we've had more in the past. Yeah. Oh yeah. Rumors yeah. of like cocaine in our Coca Cola. <laughs> like all sorts right. Of right. Yeah. Right. And you know, just in housewives are just you know, oh, yeah. housewives are just taking taking a little hit of opium just every now and then, and you yeah. know, yeah, and. It's really not a big deal, but um, there is kind of a, like during this time, there is kind of a growing sentiment culturally around drug use, but a lot of it is time, but a lot of the messaging around, around drugs, especially promoted by um, Anslinger is this idea that, um, um, that that drug use is kind of racialized. Mm -hmm. So marijuana is, so the so the Mexicans are doing marijuana, and you know, and the Asians are promote are promoting opium, and they're bringing that to our neighbor. And the you know, and the black people are promoting heroin. And he really had this big thing with like jazz singers and trying to break up the jazz. Yeah, and so who wants to take down the jazz? <laughs> okay, right, yeah, right, I mean, right, someone who's really profoundly racist wants to take right, down the jazz. Right. Okay. I mean, right. Yeah. So, yeah, he's trying. Yeah, he's trying to. He's trying to keep black people from. And, and on some, I, I mean, this is like a rudimentary explanation of it, but like on some, like, he's just trying to keep black people and white people from from interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. I think to a large extent to to prevent miscegenation. And um. You know, and so, and so he, you know, he's just going after jazz and in this and in this jazz club, and trying to keep people from going jazz because the black people are doing, you know, the black people are using, and like he, like he, he really goes after Billy Holiday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've heard he, of yeah, a little bit. Of yeah, that. yeah. And so, you know, I read her autobiography, and she, and even back then, she's talking. She's talking about like why are we, why are we penalizing in a legal sense people who are using people who have addiction issues? Because she she went through these long periods of like she went through these periods of like trying to quit, trying to quit, and then you know, and then and then you know, using again and like and you know, Anthony was just after her, you know. <laughs> so, okay. Right. Right. And so. And so that's how we start thinking. That's how we start thinking about drugs in a racial sense. Okay? okay. And so then we get to, you know, so then we take this into the Nixon administration. You know. I'm so glad Ooh. that you're leading the history lesson because I, I was going to start us with Nixon. So this is, this is really great because we went back like, you know, decades oh. before when I initiated <laughs> it. Yeah. Okay. So now we oh. read Nixon, which is where a lot of people start with the war on drugs conversation. Right, right. So I'm you know, glad we're talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to be talking to y'all too. <laughs> yeah. So, so Nixon, um, Nixon, he, 
he's actually the person who in the national sense as a presidential politician started saying like we need to prosecute this war on drugs as public enemy um number one um in reality like in the in the cultural in the cultural gestalt nobody is really caring that much oh really okay so he's like stirring the pot right all right i mean it's a, a part of what politics is i think and i think some people are better at this than others is putting your issues out on the front line when you know and, and prioritizing your issues within the national conversation because that's what gets legislated well well you know drug use wasn't necessarily in the national converse, conversation like that um you know according according to the sources i've looked at but um you know but he does start talking about this war on drugs and he dedicates some resources to it but you know, and not saying that what he does, what he did is benign, but his war on drugs, a lot of it is rhetorical. Mm, okay. Yeah, a lot of it is, you know, a lot of it is just him talking about it. It's not really until we get to the eighties to when we get the drug war that we know it as we know it today. Oh, oh and let me and that's underrated. Oh, but let me back up about Nixon one more because there is there is one thing there's a there's a um he did have a staff member somebody a member of his cabinet come out and say you know listen the reason we started talking john Ehrlichman, the reason we started talking about drugs is because it's kind of a backlash to the civil rights movement into and or excuse me the black into the into the anti-war movement right so he kind of says listen we can't make it illegal for you to be against the vietnam war or to be black but since some people, but you know, since we think that you know some of the protesters and quote unquote hippies are using marijuana, and you know, and so and since you know we think black people are using drugs too, we'll just incar, you know, we'll just incarcerate them. We can't make it. We can't make being black or being anti-war illegal, but we can make drugs illegal, and yeah, you know, and that's kind of the impetus, or, or from his perspective, that's the impetus for that. To be fair, there have been other people from his cabinet who said no that's not the case but that is out there we have to and we have to deal with yeah we do we do have to deal with that right? yeah it's definitely gotten some attention of late like i remember mm. i mean as i as i dig through that's what often comes up as you like dig through the um you know some of the reporting on it is and that's why you know when i think we're on drugs my mind goes to nixon because i think of those quotes so it's interesting to hear you know what was going on earlier and then also to think like oh it was largely largely rhetorical until the 80s when we get some of these policies that you've written about you know in some of your work and how just how super damaging they are yeah yeah um so i mean it and it's also worth noting that this shows us that to some way we we can make a we can make the argument that the drug war is racist in intent Mm-hmm. And and here's the you know and here's the data to kind of show it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting too because um, I was doing some thinking or I had to prep something lately where I had to talk through the purpose of stigma and you know one of the purposes of stigma, especially for racism, is to oppress, right? 
And mm -hmm. so if the drug war is a structural manifestation of racism, essentially, then it's doing a really good job oppressing. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's not, you know, stigma serves a function and often, you know, it kind of varies more or less sometimes I think with like how purposeful people are in, you mm. know, having the, in enacting those functions, like, you know, stig the function of stigma with something like HIV or COVID is like, you know, to keep people away. It's like this disgust yes. reaction. Well, that might be like, you know, less purposeful, but this drug war, I mean, that's really on purpose. That's like a purposeful oppression example. Yeah, yeah, and I I think so. And just as we as we've gone through you know this time through Democratic and Republican Republican administrations, um, like we've just seen this thing continuously be prosecuted. Um, like mass incarceration begins in the '80s, and it escalates up until today. A lot of this because of you know drug changes in drug policy at the federal and state level. Um, you know, and just these get tough on crime policies. You know, they have been again supported by presidents and and Congress members in both parties. So, you know, it's it's just been a lot of you know, it's just been a lot of a lot of politicians coming up and working and just trying to one up each other. Who's going to be tougher on crime? Who's going to be tougher on? To the point where, you know, to the point where, you know, we when we start thinking about it, or at least when I start thinking about it, like, does this make sense? Why are we dealing with addiction using using the criminal justice apparatus? <laughs> yeah. We don't right, we, I, we don't do it for cancer patients. We're not like, oh, you have cancer, let's get you to jail, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like calling. I mean, like using police officers to process to try to deal with addiction just it makes it makes no it's outside of the purpose. Like that's that's like me calling a doctor if I hear somebody beating a woman in the apartment. Next day. What yeah. is he gonna do? <laughs> right. Yeah. Let me yeah. grab my stethoscope. I'm on my way. <laughs> I, I know. I know. I mean, there's it. It just makes no sense. Like our approach yeah. to it just makes no sense. Yeah, I and love so, that. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I'm. So I'm just hoping that at some point we can like just kind of get to the point where we can at least marijuana, uh, legalize marijuana. And for people who have different addiction, um, different types of addictions, especially some of the harder drugs, um, that we can really like buttress our treatment um, apparatus as well. Because remember, during this time where there, where mass incarceration is going up and we're putting more money into prisons and law enforcement, they're cutting. They're cutting money from social services. Right. Yeah, that's where it's coming from. Yep. <laughs> <Part> yeah. <of. laughs> yeah. Right. So it's. I mean, it's it's just odd. Like you're you're gonna lock, like you lock people up for addiction, but then you take away the thing that's gonna help mm -hmm. them get off. Right. Their addiction. Yeah. It's, they're, yeah. They're, it's a, okay. Um. And so, you know, and so there, you know, so there's there's just all of this, and then when, we, and then what. As it, as this relates to HIV specifically, like there are a few ways that this makes Black communities more vulnerable to HIV. Uh, one of the first things that you know, we talk, one of the first things is that you know just what happened when 
people are over-policed and they're giving longer sentences for similar crimes and more serious charges. Um, You know, when you do that, you extract just a lot of, you extract a lot of black men out of, you know, out of the community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that can, you know, that can do some peculiar things to like sexual networking dynamics. Yep. Mm. That's like a really light way to say that. <laughs> no, yeah. when you take out all the men and you put them in in prison, that just you know does some strange things to yeah. how people are having sex with each other. <laughs> okay, so what does yeah. it do? Um, so, like, so I, the simplest way to talk about this is like there are just not enough men to go around after you after you take so many of of, of them out of any community out of any community. Okay. And if you take away so many that, first of all, that disrupts a lot of monogamous relationships. Um, And monogamy, you know, does help undermine HIV. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So you're you're breaking up these relationships. Um, And I think this would happen just in any community. Like if there are like large numbers of women you have a lot of heterosexual men. Mind you, this can be in any community. Like some people may take advantage of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's just, Andy? I mean, I'm a social psychologist. There's the power of the situation at play. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Yeah. And there, you know, and that can, um, you know, and, and so some people may, some people may do that. Mm-hmm. Some so you may. have some people having There's, sex with multiple partners. Because you, yeah. you know now yeah so you may have the we call it sexual concurrency right and so and so that you know and that's a, a the, the literature on this is a bit mixed um so like so I've seen some articles that kind of say well you know sexual concurrent they say sexual concurrency is a really good way to spread a to spread any disease any sexually transmitted disease earlier, faster, and more pro- more prominently within a community. Okay. Um, and you know, I've seen one or two studies that are kind of like, well, you know, the effects of that may be, you know, maybe a little bit, may not be as high as we think. But, but you know, that it is something that, you know, we need to look at. Okay. So you may have more sexual concurrency um, sometimes. Um, Again, it can happen in any community. You just take men out of it. But there's a well. What does that mean for, like, uh, for like for women's ability to, like, sex, to engage in sexual negotiation oh, from a yeah. posi- from a position of power? Absolutely. From position yeah. of greater power. You know? So, so that so that's one thing for people who are living with a. That's one. That's one way that it can make communities more vulnerable to HIV. Another way is that if you're, if you put a lot of people in a prison, like when they get out, the way our society is structured, we're like people who are, uh, people who are who have a history of incarceration. Um, they're kind. Of, the penalties for that remain after you get out. So, so there are less access to jobs. There are less access to social provisions, things like housing, things like, like all of these things you just need to eat and be healthy, eat, live, have a place to stay, be healthy. 
Um, and you put people with it and you put people at greater risk for poverty when you do that. And there is a there is a very strong relationship between poverty and HIV. Um, there's a relationship, there's a strong relationship between poverty and like any disease. Yeah. But but like but we're placing more people, you know, in poverty. And access to healthcare can be a little too access to healthcare can be tempered in that situation. If you undermine people's access to healthcare, well, one of the main one of the main things that's really helping to drive HIV rates down right now is is the strategy of trying to test people early, get them promptly treated and promptly into care and and making sure people are engaged in care, monitored in care, and are given access to um, antiretrovirals, which are drugs that help um, address HIV. Um, you know, and the drugs, you know, and the medications have gotten a lot better over time, um, more effective, and to the point to where viral suppression can be so low to the point where you, where transmission is going to go down. Right. Well, if people are having trouble accessing healthcare, and most people get healthcare from their jobs, it's going to prevent them from getting that. Um, and maybe they can act. Maybe they can access Ryan White, but we still need to buttress like that. That's, that's yeah. So Ryan White well, is like you know? some extra support um, funding to help get people um, connected into care. But yeah, I mean, right. you still have all of these hoops, you know, often that you need to navigate. And there are there are organizations out there that really, I mean, one of the primary things that they do is just like help people figure out how to like access um, services yeah. through Ryan White and things like that. So it's not. It takes a good amount of, you know, what we might call like health literacy or understanding of how to get through mm-hmm. the system to access all of that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, circling back to what you were saying earlier, if we had universal health care, then <laughs> we yeah. could, anyone could just access their HIV meds. And, you know, what you're saying, essentially, like if you take your HIV medication, it essentially like keeps the, vi- the virus circulating in your blood so low that it's undetectable. And if it's so low that it's undetectable, um, when you run a test, then it's like, it's really hard. Some would say you're just not going to pass it on to other people. So. Right. 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 And so, I mean, so those, so those are just a couple of the ways to where our drug policy has this reverberating effect through black communities and makes people more more vulnerable to HIV, um, you know, some through, and some of these are through pathways of behavior, and some of these are just through pathways of access to care, and, um, you know, and the stress and social, and the stress and stigma, they, um, and stress and stigma and social marginalization of maybe not only being HIV positive, but also being, um, but also having a history of incarceration, yeah. which for, which for some reason, People who are living with HIV um, are more likely to be incarcerated. Not quite, not quite sure why, but there is this relationship between those, you know, between those two, just mere incarceration and HIV. So from like a, you know, there's a lot of attention right now to intersectional, intersectional stigma. So living with, you know, multiple characteristics maybe that might be stigmatized or oppressed in some sort of way. And this just strikes me as like a really heavy stigma storm when you add, you know, the, um, racism that people experience and then stigma associated maybe with substance use, depending on the substance that they're using. And then like 
when you add in incarceration and then HIV. I mean, yeah. that that's such a pronounced stigma storm. I mean, what does do have you do you talk to people about their experiences of stigma sort of at the intersection of all of those things? Do have you done work there or a lot of it sounds like what you're talking about is really though like structural issues that people face. Is that mostly what you focus on? Um yeah, yeah. Um so we do so I have a um well she she's not my student, but she she's working on a um her dissertation is on that topic. Oh great, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, so she like she's a um she's a she's in a social worker in the school of in the school of public health and she's like worked on some average. Sorry, is she going to call it the stigma storm? Is that the name of her dissertation? Well, I'm, I'm going to call her up and I'm going to tell her about that. Right, yeah, you know, Valerie you says, you must. Your recommendation. Like, as a committee <laughs> member. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so I didn't mean to um, cut you off, so continue. So you have somebody work focusing on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It would, right. And so that's that's being, that uh, that information is being analyzed right now. So we're hoping to know more and I can give you a more robust answer. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but but yeah, but I do think that the 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 nature of stigma, especially stigma around HIV, just overlaps with other types of stigmas as well. Um, you know, it's like you can't. It is hard to disentangle um, the stigma around HIV with the stigma around sexual and gender minorities. Like it's just like you just can't really dis you can't really disentangle that. Um, but I'm hoping that we can bring attention to recognizing that for a, a considerable subgroup of people who are living with HIV, you can't disentangle um that uh that stigma, the stigma around like having a history of incarceration as well. I did some um I did this uh, small study, had about had about 30 people in it. Um, you know, and this is a a study like that is usually used to like step up to inform to like help scale up for a bigger study so it helps people recognize hey there may be something here let's do something bigger or let's fund something bigger where that can be recognized mm-hmm. um and then that's it there was a i did these i did these correlations i did just to see if there were relationships between stigma around being uh, stigma around living with HIV and stigma around um, having a history of incarceration. Uh, so, with that small study, it looks like there is it looks like there is an association between the two. Mm-hmm. So, if I experience more of one, then I also experience more of the other. Um, not necessarily that, but it, okay. just that there's a relationship that mm-hmm. if you put these two together, they're kind of. Um, they can kind of work in tandem. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, and and what and the ways in which that means we're still we're still going to have to figure out. I think the I think the K award can, even though the K award is with um, HIV negative people or people who don't have their HIV status uh, confirmed positive, you may get a. I think that'd be an interesting question to explore there. Yeah, so the K Awards, big deal. It just came that also came through this summer. So you're having a big summer, right? The K Award is a big act it's a pretty big research grant in that and and can, you know, facilitate 
facilitate some training, which is great because as we talked about earlier, we're like always training, <laughs> but it'll protect, you know, most of your time to engage in your scholarship over the next couple of years. So um, we'd love to hear more about that and what you're, what you're doing and what you're focusing on within that project. Okay, well, um, so the K Award focuses on, or the research arm of the K, focuses on people who have a history of incarceration and HIV testing behavior and how that relates to various types of stigma. Um, African Americans, 18 to 24 year old, 18 to 24 years old. Why? Why that age group? Um, because that's a year where a lot of people um intercorrections inter or are put under correctional control but it's also a, a time where um we're seeing a lot we're seeing um people contract hiv mm-hmm. so um no and so for the reasons i explained earlier in the podcast i think it's important to look at who look at hiv testing behavior for people after they get out um, so that we've we've established that this is a group that may be at elevated vulnerability. So, if we, so, what is what are some of the things that are going to inform their participation in the in the continuum of care, getting tested for HIV, and if they're positive, going going on to uh, see a doctor and and um, get and take the prescriptions, um, and so, so we're looking at that. We're also looking at people's attitudes towards the courts and people's attitudes towards um, and their interactions with the police. Oh, that's interesting. What do you what are you thinking? You're, do you have any hypotheses about what you think you're going to find, or is it more exploratory? Um, it's more exploratory. It's more exploratory. I wouldn't be surprised if we found that hey, people have a negative. Yeah. <laughs> people have a negative view, especially given <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Right. I mean, give, I mean, I think we can safely say that during this moment, where um, we're seeing a lot of African American individuals, a lot of Black individuals who um, have been subject to, you know, what has been described as police brutality, you know, a uh, description that you know I think is I think is fair. Um, I mean, it's caught on camera. It looks brutal. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so for the researchers tend to temper their words. So. Yeah. No, I, I really <laughs> like this whole conversation. Like you're just, um, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is that in getting tenure, I'm like, I feel like I'm, I've gotten very good at like playing the game. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, the rules of the game, you know, you like, so I can, you know, I, I can hear, you know, your, your, a lot of your, like your scientist coming out and like, you know, Maybe it's brutal. Some evidence <laughs> suggests that right. it could be, right. it could be brutal. Yeah, <laughs> you're, right. you're a I very mean, scientist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how we're trained to talk. It but is how we're trained to talk. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's like it's here's the science, but we can't really know for sure. We're ninety nine percent sure, but we have to leave that one percent. So yeah. we say so we temper our language a little bit, whereas and I don't, you know, in terms of really seeing in terms of really advocating for policies that we and changes that we want to see like i don't know if that's always a good thing because like in terms of messaging i yeah. think most people understand 
Like this is police. This is police brutality. Right. But when you add a, big, a bunch of extra words to it, it's not really. It kind yeah. of keeps it from. It kind of filters the message or dilutes the message. Yeah. Um, so the opinion of Joanna that a lot of these things are police brutality, mm-hmm. um, or these things are police brutality, and and remember, I'm in Louisville, so you know, Brianna Taylor, we had, um, uh-huh. yeah, and so you know, if we're collecting, we're collecting data here, and you know, that's that's happened. Like a woman was, you know, a woman was in bed, and police came to the wrong house and shot her. She's dead, and there's been no real, in my opinion, nobody's really, like where there's been, there hasn't been the type of accountability that I would like to see, nor am I confident that it'll happen. Right. Right. Yeah. Which brings me to another case, and which brings me to another, um, another point in that, oh, and I hope I'm not talking too much, but you'll stop me if I am, but okay. We're not, but, we've talked <laughs> to you all day, so. <laughs> okay. Right, which brings me to another point that, like, we're doing a lot, you know, we've been screaming about this for years, you know, for years. Like we, like I grew up with like just then, just an idea of, you know, I may have to be a little more wary about the police than other people. Yeah. Um, um, you know, and I'm, another side note, I'm not quite sure how we got to the point where people think that protesting police brutality is the same thing as protesting police but just yeah no that's a really good <laughs> yeah. point yeah it's totally different those are two yeah those are two different. right right and i'm and i'm not and i don't think that and i think there are dishonest actors who are promoting that yep who are promoting that narrative but for their own for their own means but you know such as the such as the history but i think that you know i've i've always i've always you know had I always had the kind of thing like, all right, you know, like you, like you got to call them things. You got to call them things go wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. But like interactions are not always positive. Yeah. Know? Um, and yeah, and it's just, you know, I don't, uh, yeah, getting back to the research. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, here's this is the interesting thing, you know, because like I think that we're scientists and we're people. Right. Yeah. And those two experiences are really intertwined. And I think that, um, you know, our experiences as people can be a real strength for our, you know, perspectives as scientists. And so I think like one of the things I'm hoping to do more like, <laughs> as a ten, mm-hmm. you know, with tenure is to like bring more of all of myself to okay. my science. And, but I do think that there's like there for some people, there's, there's some pushback about that. Like it makes us less objective if we bring our experiences to it. Like I, I also, I think that that is like a critique of it, but I don't know that anyone has ever told like a white man, like if you, if you, if you bring your perspective to this, like you're not being objective. Like, I think that that like is more targeted towards certain people. (laughs) um, But anyway, I think that those, I think it's hard maybe impossible to separate that. And I think all we can do is um, be honest in our science, you know, with, which is actually something that we learned from Sam Friedman earlier this summer on another episode. He's like, scientific objectivity might be bullshit. <laughs> he said it. <laughs> He's like, all we can do is be honest with our, with where, you know, with our endeavor. But I'm not sure that I would say it's 
that it's bullshit, but I do think that we're as scientists, we're full people and we get, you know, we bring everything to the plate. So. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, cool. Um, yeah. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that, that's, yeah, I, I'm, I, I agree with that. Um, so, okay. I'll talk about the police thing a little more then. Um, so yeah, just grow. Yeah. So, you know, I think like a lot of African-American men, there's just been a lot of suspicion and the, when you're growing up and some of the, some of the experiences you have can validate that. Mm. Don't get me wrong. I've had positive experiences with police and just, you know, met some of them really cool people, you know, have friends who are, you know, whatever. But, um, but one of the, you know, I'd be lying if I said that, you know, they've all been positive and I'd be lying if I said, I didn't think there were some things that were race-based. I think I've been in an environment where like her, like where harassment of black people for has been used as a cottage industry for tank as a as a revenue stream, you know, for tank and, and so and you know, and it's like we it's like you're liking up my friend. I don't know why, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, absolutely. Like we're like we're sitting here literally on our property doing nothing. And you know, so why why are we even talking? I have business here. Why are we talking? Why are we interacting? You know, this is like I actually live here you know, and what are you no and what are you doing like i didn't call you who's who's asking me to come here anyway that um and so you know and just you know i have friends who've you know suffer police brutality um family members you know just just really awful stuff it's so sad yeah. um you know I, I i mean like actual physical police brutality oh wow and, okay yeah 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 and you know we've like we've been here and i was just and i'm seeing you know i'm seeing just the use of force um for unarmed people i'm like eh, that's like why why don't get me wrong i do recognize that people have like j- people have jobs to end it and there's danger in it and i do recognize that there's danger in being quick but i think that a lot of the ways that people are being a lot of the ways that people are being trained they're not like the, we're, this isn't a problem of bad apples, you know, right? This isn't a problem of bad apples. People are actually trained. To, I think people are actually trained to be more aggressive than they need, you know, than they need to be, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if people are being trained in a way that is obviously caustic for communities, then can we really blame them, or can you blame the fact that they're getting so much training? <laughs> across the country that we've institutionalized training across the country Absolutely. that are poor. Like this is a system wide problem. This isn't a, ba- a problem of bad apples. It's a system wide system wide problem. We go after, like there's a lot of proactive policing in areas where it's not warranted. Right. So Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in his book, you know, in his book, um, talking to strangers. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, and he really makes this really interesting point in that, like his, the police officer's interaction with Sandra Bland, yeah, he may have been a little more aggressive than he needed to be, but this is, but he's trained to do this yeah, in a way that police officers across the country are trained to do this. Um, and even, and even if you have, and even if you have people who are a little more, who are more reasonable in their execution of how they do, and I've met them, I've met people who've been 
very reasonable in their execution. Um, there's still there's still the fact that people are trained in a way that really that is appropriate in some instances, but not appropriate in others. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the and I think the I think the breadth of the situations where things may be inappropriate are it's just too large. If it was just a couple bad apples, we wouldn't see a pattern of effects. You know, I mean there's like there's just a pattern of things happening and um you know there's starting to be better research on right like you know even just taking the what is it the knee to the neck thing <laughs> that yeah strangles people to death like if you don't you know that's just like one of that's like a system systemic thing like people are taught to do that and then they do mm. that and then people mm. people die i mean so don't teach people to do that is just like one right. of maybe a million examples but that's a it is it's a training thing it's a culture thing it's like that's it's not a bad apple thing so much as a way we've people have learned how to do things yeah yeah so um, so it just makes no sense again another one of those things that i, I just think makes no sense again <laughs> um okay so we're so where are we i forgot what the question we're, we're we're we are where we are we're in the yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, okay. well, we were asking you a little bit about your cave but maybe if we're in a um if we're thinking a little bit about positionality, maybe I'll, I'll ask you, you know, what is it like for you as an African-American man to uh -huh. do, who's had these experiences with the criminal justice um, system and who has had, you know, family members affected by HIV and all of this? How is it like for you to, to do this type of research? Um, well, so, okay, so let me clarify, not necessarily family members, Oh, sorry. Not I know of, okay, but, sorry about but that. Just, yeah. But like good friends, but like good friends, but like but like friends. Okay. Well, I won't, well, I won't, I won't necessarily say good, friend, but friends. Sure. You know, yeah. folks who I've met, you know, through met through the um, course of my work, and you know, just living. You know, but, yeah. But um, <clears throat> what we um, so how how does my how does my position as an African American man inform that? Yeah, just what is it like? Is it like, does it it's, feel really invigorating to do this research? Like, do you feel like, yes, I'm doing it? Do you feel exhausted and tired by it? Like, like you can't turn off. I have a lot of feelings okay. about doing sexism research, for example. I, it like bums me yeah. out, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of, I'm actually kind of energized about it because it's, it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm in some small way fighting something that I think is wrong. Yeah. You know? In some small way, I think that like this is this is a big elephant. My piece, my small piece, is to tackle this part of it. Now, and hopefully, it can be meaningful um, to some people in some respects. Hopefully, we can save lives on a larger on a larger level. Uh, so, for the most part, it it is energizing. Uh, so, you know, when you're behind your computer at one o'clock you know, in the, in the morning doing it and, you know, your wife is looking at you like, what are you doing? Uh, like, it's still, I mean, that's why it's still energizing, but it's still, you know, but that being said, it can still be pretty, I mean, it's like, this is painful to see. Yeah. This is painful to see. These are literally issues of life and death and it's, it's just painful to see. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 
it it's is hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's. I mean, there's research on this, but this is like passively traumatizing. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're glad that you're doing the work because I don't think it is a small way. I, I, yeah. I mean, I'm in this field because I think that there is a, a, you know, there's definitely power in understanding, you know, I mean, it mm-hmm. takes it from, from a place of like, you know, people say that this is how it works, but you know, they're making that up. Like it, it takes it out of that sort of like gray zone and into like, no, this is, this is how it works. And if you if you can show that this is how these things work, then that gives power to change it. You know, that gives an evidence base to create better policies, to do better things. I mean, it gives more attention, you know, to these issues. So I think it's a big monster way to do it. I think it's fantastic. (laughs) So maybe I'm biased because I'm, you know, I'm in the trenches here with you doing the same thing. And so I'm trying to find meaning in it all, but (laughs) I think it's, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. I, I think you're doing really important work. I think yeah, we I think both are. Here. Yeah, I think we're okay. yeah, glad to be yeah, in the we, Yeah, we do okay. And you've been so cool. Just so, just through the years. <laughs> Likewise. Been, just through the years that I've known you. So, so well, Delaney, um, I'm, I'm happy to have been here. Yeah, I was just going to say, is there anything mm-hmm. else that we didn't ask you about that we should have? Or did we, did we cover a good amount of ground? No, I think we, I think we covered some good ground again again i feel like i have to put this disclaimer on <laughs> okay look all police officers are not bad oh, I don't think they you are said that at all. yeah i don't want to get misconstrued though but so because no. again i've had positive interest but like we definitely but there definitely is a system-wide problem and what is egregious and what's scandalous about this isn't just what has some individual actors have done but just the way the system operates this is like this is awful. This is oppressive. So, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's we're gonna underline and bold that in our transcript. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But but outside of that, I'm too, I'm I'm so happy to have been here. So in this episode, Jelani mentioned Brianna Taylor because, in, you know, in part because she was from Louisville. So inspired by the Say Her Name movement, we wanted to dedicate this rap uh, to Brianna. Yeah. So to tell you guys a little bit more about Brianna Taylor, she was a 26-year-old EMT who was killed when police officers executing a no-knock warrant in the middle of the night killed her in her apartment in Louisville, Kentucky. Brianna was known for, to her friends and family as someone who loved playing board games. Phase 10 and Skip Bo were her favorites. She loved being with her family when she wasn't working tirelessly as an EMT, working to help others in her community. And then on June 5th, what would have been Brianna Taylor's 27th birthday, many people used the hashtag, say her name, to remember her and to raise awareness about her case. The Say Her Name movement also brings awareness to other Black women whose similar stories may not have garnered as much national attention. So I was digging around in the peer-reviewed academic literature, as I often do when I'm trying to, you know, understand something further. And I found this really amazing article by Michelle Jacobs. It was written in 2017, and it's titled The Violent State, Black Women's Invisible Struggle Against Police Violence. 
my original plan was just to read you the full 67 pages of the article, but Carly told me that we might not have enough space on Buzzsprout to host all. Right. That was the only reason, but yes. Yeah, that's the only reason. Um, But I thought maybe what we could do is talk through some of the things in this article that really struck out to me. Yeah, which there were a lot of them. So many. Yeah. Okay. So... The first thing is just a quote from Dr. Jacobs. I mean, she says, Black women are subjected to every type of law enforcement violence imaginable. The most severe violence causes death, but Black women are routinely brutalized by the violence or by the police in ways that do not cause death. So that to me was really striking because, you know, we're talking about Breonna Taylor and there's a lot of conversation around, we don't talk enough about women who have been killed by police. And that's like at one end of the spectrum. So just this idea that there is this routine brutalization that's happening all the time that we're not really talking about was really alarming to, yeah. you know, to think about. So she then goes on to say that the relationship between Black women and the state was birthed in violence. I was just like, what a quote. <laughs> right. Yeah, birthed in violence. I thought that was really amazing. So she took a historical view to understand stereotypes that promote violence towards Black women and or shape how people react to Black women who are experiencing violence. And she focused in on three stereotypes, which I thought were really interesting. So the first is that Black women are promiscuous and are of low moral character. So again, this is a stereotype. Um, So this stereotype promotes the belief that Black women are responsible for being raped, they're responsible for being sexually assaulted, this sort of like she asked for it mentality. So that was the first one. The second one, the second stereotype um, was that Black women are liars. So uh, they're not credible when they do report that they have been um, victimized. Um, so So they're not, you know, Right. They're not credible. They're not believed because they're liars. Sorry, even talking about this makes me feel queasy. Like reading the stereotypes is, is these are awful, awful stereotypes. Yeah. Okay. And then the third was black women as manlike and overly aggressive. So basically I think the idea here is that, um, with these, that black women are used to violence. So it's not as harmful to her or to them. So basically it's like a tool for taking away empathy. And I was really struck by how together these stereotypes just serve to blame black women for their own victimization and then to go on to dehumanize their experiences of pain so that, you know, generally society doesn't need to take it seriously. Right. So it's just like, all of these working in concert are dangerous and terrible and awful. And yeah, absolutely. So the brilliant Dr. Jacobs then goes on to discuss different ways that black women experience violence from the police. So she of course gets into murder and she discusses um, killings from police officers at length, but then she starts digging into um sexual assaults and violence from police officers. And this is, this was really hard to read. So she spotlighted a case of Daniel Holtzclaw, who was an Oklahoma police officer who was convicted in 2016 
of raping 13 women on duty. So this all happened just in a six-month span in 2014. And apparently he targeted women who he thought would be vulnerable. And he told them that no one would believe him because he's a police officer. And if we circle back to um, the stereotypes of Black women, like it fits right in there, right? Like Black women as promiscuous and of low moral character. So that's why they are rapable in his mind, right? And then Black women as liars. So he's telling them like, well, if you go to the police, like if you tell anyone, you're not going to be believed, right? right? Because people think you're liars. Yeah. And so then she pepper, you know, she peppers through all of these other examples just to really drive home. Like this isn't an anomaly. This wasn't like a, a one bad apple scene with the um, killings that we're seeing that this is, this is a, a systemic issue. Exactly. It was really concerning to me, Carly, like when she was writing about the Daniel Holtzclaw case, she was like, this got lots of attention and really brought the issue to light. This is in 2016. And I'm embarrassed. Like I didn't know about it. Did you, I mean, me? Yeah. You know, I, I do remember, I think it passed through, you know, maybe one of my Reddit news pages, but, um, I, you know, wouldn't have been able to pull that from memory without being reminded of it right now. But what's crazier to me is that, you know, all of this, all of this charges happened in the six month span in 2014. And at that point, you know, he'd been on the force for a little bit that like, to me, I just wonder, you know, how how deep does it run with that person let alone like you're saying you know it's a whole systemic thing it's this is not something that just happened once and that's why you know she's writing about it it's like this is this is a problem and this is what you know the reality is for you know black women and the you know legal system in general in this country yeah it feels to me like we're getting a little bit of light on this issue with brianna taylor um but it just feels like an iceberg to me. Like right. it feels like these couple of killings at the top or like these these sexual assaults and these rapes that we know about right. are floating above the water. But it just feels like what's under the water, it could sink the Titanic. I mean, yeah. it feels really large. Right. Um, you know, and I think that the only <laughs> the only bright spot in this maybe for me is is that we have Jelani on our team, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have, yeah, people like Jelani who um, is focused on these issues, who is um, thinking deeply about the criminal justice system, about its intersections with racism and stigma and issues of health equity. And, you know, that he has other scholars as well who's, who are doing this type of research, including this brilliant Michelle Jacobs, that we were really excited to, you know, read more of her work. Um, so hopefully, you know, science is like always the solution to me. <laughs> so right. I'm hopeful that with Jelani on our team and with some of these other scientists on our team that we can make some progress in this direction and light up the iceberg so that we can yeah. all see how big it really is. Me too. Yeah. Thanks to the Stigma and Health Inequities Lab at the University of Delaware, including Mackenzie Sarnak and Sarah Lopez. This episode was researched by Christina Holsapple and Alyssa Leung, and the episode was edited by Christina Holsapple. 
thanks to City Girl for the music for the podcast. And you guys can follow us on Instagram at Sex Drugs Science for updates. Or if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can email us at sex drugs and science at gmail.com. That's sex drugs, the letter N, science at gmail.com. And thanks to all of you for listening.